Welcome to another episode of Demonosophy and Beyond, the podcast that seeks to keep the mundane world from draining you dry. I'm Greg Bryant, your host, and although I am no Anne Rice, I'm about to have my very own interview with a vampire. I'd like to welcome a very special guest, Magistra Zaya. Did I say that correctly? Yes, thank you for having me. Excellent, excellent. Um, so before our very first conversation, you were highly recommended by a mutual associate as someone dedicated to your work, which is one of the reasons why I sought you out. Uh, you and I had a like lengthy conversation over Messenger. I think it, like it, it happened over like a few days, and it was both educational and enjoyable. So when the time came for me to do an episode on vampires, like there was no question who I wanted to interview. Um, vampirism is a very popular topic because of the media, but I believe the truth about it is also obscured by it, and the subculture that exists is even less understood. So with your help, I'd like to unearth the truth about the vampire community. Is that cool? That sounds wonderful. <laughs> all right. So first of all, uh, do living vampires have a name that they go by uh, that they use amongst themselves? This is a great question because I have personally never discussed this with anyone else other than uh, my husband, who's my confidant. Yes, living vampires do have a name that they go by, which I would refer to as a true name, meaning this is not a nightside name or a sobriquet that vampires adopt once they become awakened. This is actually the divine name of their energy signature. It is not a name they pick out or a name, for instance, that has been given to them by an elder. It is something of a sacred bond between the vampire and what Omnia would term as those without body or other traditions would term the undead. I'll use myself for an example. My true name was offered up to me in the dream state. It has been used mm -hmm. by those without body on many instances for communication and it helps me to instill my connection with them. I would say that if you are blessed with a true name from the undead or those without body, then you are worthy and valuable to others. You really have something to offer if you further that connection with your teachers. Okay. And the, um, the vampire community as a, let's say species, do they have a name that they have, uh, other than, you know, vampire? It's interesting. I would say for the most part, it's a very personal question that not a lot of people would be so willing to answer. There are many magical traditions that believe if you share that name, uh, something may befall you or you may lose that connection with your spirits or your guides for sharing that name. So I know my husband's name. I know my own name. I do not know any other vampires' true names if they were to have them. Okay. That's understood. You know, me being part of the magical community, I can understand keeping some things hush-hush. Yes. So... 
what are some telltale signs that a person may be a vampire? This is another great question, and I think that there are a lot of misconceptions concerning what a real vampire actually is. So what I would say are signs that you may be a vampire. Well, let's touch upon the concept of what a vampire is. But begin with the idea that many people have what we call vampiric tendencies. And that can be confusing for others, especially people who are getting into the vampire community. People would call them, you know, neophytes new seekers in the vampire community can be confused between a vampiric tendency and someone who is actually a vampire. I would say that there are very many people who have vampiric tendencies versus those who are actually vampires, meaning they can exemplify gifts such as psychic ability, astral travel, fast healing, But what makes someone a vampire is simply not just the act of consuming energy. And I'm solely going to talk about energy-based vampirism because I do not have the experience of a sanguine. That is not something that I practice. But knowing how to utilize that energy and being able to manifest it. So currently, there's not enough in-depth information discussing how we can utilize this harvested life force. Yes, we have books that offer up the mechanics of how to feed, but there are deeper mysteries that define the vampire even more so. Those mysteries are focused on how we use this energy and what we can actually do with it daily. That means not just making things up as far as what we may see or hear is concerned, but utilizing what we have harvested in order to make something occur within this living reality. Some may call this sorcery. Others may call this uh, energy manipulation. It can be used in all sorts of ways. So signs if a practitioner can make phenomena actually occur within a ritual setting, be it intentional or non-intentional, then I would say they know how to take the life force they've harvested and put it to full or somewhat intermediate use, let's say. There are always new challenges after that step. So do you... Do you guys like keep a collection of techniques that are kind of under wraps, like your own grimoire? Because I know, like um, in the let's see, the the magical coven, you know, like uh, which was with covens and stuff like that. They have their own grimoire with their own personal spells and 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 things like that. Is it kind of similar for for you guys? Yes, I would say a huge part of Omnia practices includes trial and error and then acknowledging facts and science and recording that. So, for instance, we're not going to write down if we hear a voice or maybe something were to happen as far as a a light is concerned we're looking to have actual evidence recorded 
that will give us the proof that we would need to then take that and investigate it further. So yeah, so uh, you- I wouldn't necessarily call it a grimoire per se. When I think of a grimoire, I think of a collection of magical spells mm-hmm. from like a pagan perspective, but we do keep what we consider a syllabus or guides to go by and we do keep record of of our rituals. Okay. So from what it sounds like you you use the scientific um method in order to prove that these manifestations are real correct and um okay and do you use like paranormal investigation equipment like cameras or like the um evp yes we Uh, have started to okay by starting to i mean that our collection is small in comparison to you know ghost hunters such as Zach Baggins. Our collection's very small yeah. as far as uh, the gear that we have currently. Well, the the good equipment can be very expensive, so oh, yes. um, most people, it, it takes time for them to build up a collection. Yes, we're in the process of that. <laughs> so, before you started using these paranormal investigation um, the, the paranormal investigation equipment in order to gauge what was real and I guess what was not uh, how did you gauge your manifestations that's a very valid question I would say that in the beginning because you can be fearful to talk to others about what you've experienced mainly because you know they're going to look at you and sort of think you're crazy (laughs) You have to go by what you've discovered for yourself, write it down, record Mm -hmm. it, and then see if it comes up again. And then the best way to validate that is to incorporate others into that ritual experience and not mention to them what was manifested to you, but see what they experience, have that person record or write it down so it's separate from what you have, and then compare your notes and simply use the same formula that you used prior to again see if you can work with what you were working with before which i will just call it entities right now okay now going back to the question about the telltale signs of being a vampire uh one of my listeners they wanted me to ask you a question and they wanted to know what are some of the misconceptions that you've had to clear up when somebody finds out that you're a vampire Sure. I personally do not reveal to anyone outside of the Nightside community that I am a vampire. Although because I am outspoken, I think that a lot of people have uh, picked up on it. I think that Mm -hmm. it's something that is very taboo. It's something that they're very afraid to discuss and to talk about. So I would say at first, when I meet others in person, they pick up that there's something different about me, not necessarily because I I look all too different because I don't think I really do in comparison to alternative culture today. I think I look very, you know, just reserved and quiet. I'm I'm typically a wallflower if you don't really engage in conversation with me, but 
I, I do get attention. I do get looks when I come in the room. I do get people who are openly willing to tell me their life story. And some people will pick up on it. I mean, mainly people who are energy practitioners or pagans, Wiccans, if you will, chaos practitioners will come over and say, okay, what is it that you do? Like you sort of dominate the room. What is it that you do? And I'm not very dominating in appearance. I mean, I'm a very short person. I'm only 5'4". I'm very small in build. And uh, there's nothing really exceptional about me when you look at me. I sort of fit into the room. But uh, it's just my energy. My energy is quite commanding, as I've been told. And I think that it begins there. And then I have others that will sort of, you know, pick around and ask me, okay, what is it you do? What do you practice? And most of the time I don't tell them, hey, I'm a vampire because of the word, because of the connotation, because of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone thinks, okay, if you are a vampire, well, then you're crazy. Then you sit around and you, you think you're something more grand than what you actually are. You have illusions of grandeur. And that's not really the impression I want to give people. So I discuss what it is I do without using the word vampire. I will tell them that mm -hmm. I, I practice energy work, that I have the capacity to heal others, that I'm able to uh, know someone's feelings. I'm able to talk to different energies. It, it, and I think if you present it in that manner, it's a bit more understandable and relatable to people versus just coming out yeah. and saying hey I'm a vampire uh, <laughs> misconceptions like I said I, I don't think I get any or hardly any at all because I don't tell people openly hey I, I'm a vampire it's just not a word I regularly use uh, and I don't think I've really said that to anyone in, in quite some time Hey, yeah. Well, I think energy <laughs> <laughs> energy manipulation is a little bit more acceptable because we have things like Reiki healers out there. Yeah. Um, science is beginning to understand more about like how our ores work and and a lot about how energy is transferred from human to human or how ores even dominate other people's ores. Um and along with the pagan community if you're talking to somebody with the pagan community well you know magic involves a lot of energy work things like that so i would see how that is more acceptable and there is a kind of i guess danger to revealing exactly what you are and what you do and and putting a certain label upon it because the moment that they hear a word like vampire or if they hear a word like necromancer or demonosopher in my case you know they think oh this person is evil they're going to put hexes on me or or something like that to that uh to that extent yeah and the problem so, is you know the practice in and of itself has come so far that to even relate the practice to the word anymore it, it just doesn't fit so if you can break down what it actually encompasses and what it demands and what it's about, I think that people understand it more and they just don't see the word, which mm -hmm. is what I think the future of vampirism, modern vampirism in and of its essence is headed towards. So how did the... 
from your perspective, from what you've learned, how did vampirism as a culture evolve? Oh boy, I'm not even sure if I'm the right person to be answering this question. <laughs> I see myself so far on the outside of the the culture of the community just because of my views being very different. Uh, you could do a whole episode on that. And the person to talk to about that would be uh, Lord Shaolin Asara McPhee. He could give you a whole synopsis on the culture of the vampire community. He's actually put out some books, uh, gothic uh, archives of the vampire community and literally tracing back the history to its beginning uh, in uh, 1997, I believe it was. Okay. Yeah, because I I noticed that you guys have a very rich history. I was talking with Jabbar, who is uh, a mutual associate of both of ours. Yep. And he was talking about like the uh, the book that you have on the history of vampirism, which looks very interesting. It's very lengthy. I think that it was superbly done. There are lots of mm-hmm. pictures and there are lots of documents that I don't know as though you would be able to get a hold of on your own. I think uh, Lord Shaolin and Lord Traveler have done an exceptional job with the book. And I highly recommend the book to anyone that's looking to really get in-depth learning about the Gotham, New York community. I highly recommend it. Is there a link where somebody could purchase that if they were interested in the history of vampirism? There is. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I would get in touch with Lord Shaolin Asura McPhee and him and Lord and Lord Traveler, like I said, wrote the book together. And you can get that link from him. It is on uh, Lulu. Yes, Lulu. Okay. So you said that you you were different from most vampires. How how would you say that you're you're different? In fact, um, that that kind of sort of ties into. I mean, like one of my questions. Where um, want to know like when did you realize that you were a vampire and how did you find an outlet for that aspect of yourself? And uh, I also um, I guess because you say you're different from other vampires, when you get in touch with people who are similar to you but you're still different, did you have difficulty kind of like finding your niche in that community? I wouldn't say I had total difficulty finding my own niche. I mean, everybody's so different in the vampire community, but I think what sets me sort of on the outside is that I I really truthfully enjoy being by myself. I am not someone who enjoys being a part of something. That makes sense. I've always been a man on an island and sort of observing and watching, which is, again, another attribute of a great apex predator is that we don't really participate to the max in, in a set group setting because we just like to be by ourselves. It's just a part of our nature. We enjoy, we enjoy hunting by ourselves. We enjoy 
eating by ourselves. Uh, for instance, I had a conversation the other night with with my husband, and he was telling me how he would really like to go to nightclubs by himself. I don't think that that is something <laughs> a lot of a lot of vampires in the community do. A lot of vampires in the community enjoy being around each other. They enjoy feeding off of each other. But there are a rare few of us who don't really flock to that, and who enjoy doing things totally, totally by ourselves, which is myself and most definitely my husband. And again, it's just it's a small difference, but. It definitely can end up being a, a big difference when it comes to uh, the community and in interactions. I think that, for instance, he's very, very quiet at all uh, community gatherings, and I sort of have to be a little bit of a stronger voice for the both of us because he just—it's it, not his place. He likes being by himself. He would go to nightclubs by himself. And I'm like, you realize that that sets you up for looking like a total weirdo. Like women don't like to see a man out at a nightclub by themselves. It uh, freaks them out. <laughs> but that's just how he is. He he enjoys that that separation. But to get into the next question, I realized I was a vampire when I could use harvested life force to make my goals and dreams come true. A lot of people, of course, would say, well, that's that's sorcery. And, and yes, there are many aspects of vampirism that do employ sorcery. So what is the difference between a sorcerer and a vampire? Uh, this is where I do find both words limiting, but I will explain myself more. I was about 16 when I realized I was different, which is uh, a very similar experience for a lot of people in the Nightside community. I've always had heightened senses, and I still do. Perfect vision, more than normal hearing skills, excellent health, fast healing. These things sort of became red flags, if you will, as I grew up. And still to this day, I have all of those things intact. Uh, then I began to notice I felt a high, if you will, after performing. I'm an artist by trade. And I do truly feel that arts are a very natural hobby or profession for the vampire. We put on a show, we entrance the prey, and we fill ourselves with life force, whether it's intentional or non-intentional. So entertaining is what helped me realize what it was that I had always been. And of course, I picked up literature. I was always somebody who loved to be in the bookstore. So, you know, when you love to be in the bookstore, you you read everything, you go everywhere. And I'm sure that the esoteric section was the last section that I had come upon. But when I did, I just started to read everything, just like I had in the rest of the bookstore. My outlet, of course, became my career in the arts. So I would say sorcery employs all different things, all different aspects of experimentation to make that dream or goal come true. What a vampire does is we simply use the energy that we've taken and we use that to fuel a dream or a goal. But it's specific energy. It's specifically other human energy. Now, does... Does the energy of a human change uh, the way you utilize it? Uh, like, um, a lot of people, when they think about energy vampires, yeah. they think about the people who um, 
bring up negative energies in, in, in other people around them. Sure. Is a vampire able to feed off of, let's say, the energy of a happy person or a depressed person? D- does the the energy matter? Does the, the flavor change or does it change how you use it? Or is just the energy the energy? It's a very good question. It's different for every vampire. That's what I would like to start with. The mm-hmm. very typical energy vampire that everyone thinks of is the vampire that sits in the room and just sort of will pick on other people or uh, belittle them or try to provoke them to therefore get their energy. They're what we would term the absolute bottom feeders. Uh, The higher up the experience you get, the less you want to be around something like that. It's, I can compare it to a vulture feeding on a dead carcass. Anyone who is higher on the evolutionary experience would not dare do anything like that. We want a fresh, fresh experience. We don't want something that's been sitting around such as a depressed individual or someone who's sick, which I don't think many people would gravitate towards that, but this is the comparison that I would use. Someone who is evolved, someone who is intentionally feeding, is not going to be any of those things. We're going to pick something more fruitful. We're going to gravitate towards, let's say, a professional athlete who's working out in the same room as us, uh, who has the best of health going on. We're going to tap the best. We're not going to gravitate towards what's easy or what's there, or for instance, we wouldn't be ourselves if we did. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, you, you prefer quality over exactly. what's easy. Yes. So and I guess like it, as a as a as an apex predator, like you want to do the hunting and I, I imagine you might even want the challenge. Yes, and it, it varies in your journey too, where you are on your path. Because as a beginner practitioner, you may be more of an ambient feeder. You may be enjoying to feed off the energy at a concert or at the library, for instance. The mm-hmm. more evolved vampiric practitioner, a lot of them don't even need to go anywhere in order to feed. They're so in touch with OBE out of body experiences and their astral mm-hmm. workings that they can leave their body even just sitting in a chair totally awake and go and feed from where they want to feed and then come back into themselves and the experience is done so all of those ways in which you feed all are on your individual journey and where you are in that experience are you beginner feeder are you intermediate feeder are you beyond those things and now you're just feeding to keep your connection with those without body to therefore be able to have your experience when you transition out of yourself it just depends on your journey and where you are now speaking of uh feeding via out-of-body experiences um and, and not having to leave your home 
One of the other techniques that I've read from the books that are available to public is when you are practicing as somebody who, you know, is learning to practice feeding. Um, what I read is like you have energy tentacles that reach out and kind of like grab the energy from the things around you. Uh, is that one of the techniques that vampires learn in your community and is it possible for a vampire to be so powerful that the tentacles can just go for miles let's say and just just grab onto whatever it needs to sure well it begins with the breath work so i would say for anyone who wants to investigate things further they should begin with uh hindi breath and learning breath work such as from yoga practices i think that there's a very limited amount of writing that is out there that gives people different ways in order to feed but yes the tentacle feeding that you're speaking of uh is written by Michelle Bellinger uh she gave people wonderful and many tools to be able to use as far as feeding is concerned so that that's just one out of many ways that you could feed but the idea is to use the breath and to reach from the solar plexus you know around the belly button area to extend that out to an individual so for instance if i was sitting at a coffee house and i was at a table i would extend through my breath work out through the solar plexus to visualize those tentacles reaching into that other individual and then taking that energy from there back into myself it's one method there are many many methods and the the only problem with that is that for someone who is new and coming into their own experiences they may already have or be aware of the ways in which they like to reach and take energy from other individuals it doesn't always have to be that one format there are many just like there in the animal kingdom there's not one way to kill a deer there are many it varies from animal to animal and it varies from vampire to vampire so the only issue with reading those books i feel is that a lot of people will think that this is the only way and that i need to learn to do things this way which i know for me personally that was an experience i had i've been like okay so i'm going to try this person's experience and i'm going to try to use mm-hmm. this and it it may work okay for me or it may not work at all but what i'm saying is that the vampire practitioner should go with their instincts and their gut and use what best works for them even if it's not out there in a book which most of the time it's not because it's not a a big subject that is widely written about so yes the tentacle well, like, experience can be something that you can use but there are many many other ways so like with sorcery um over the years i've learned that your imagination is basically how you limit how you apply the magic true would you say that it's kind of similar with the way feeding is it's like you can whatever you can come up with your imagination you can kind of utilize um that in order to find different ways to feed most definitely einstein said that imagination is more important than knowledge i think that there are a lot of people out there in past history that were actual practitioners of vampirism but would not use the word and yes the 
the creativity, the imagination is everything. It's how we come up with new applications for a ritual practice. So, you know, then you would get someone that would say, well, then anybody can do it. Of course, anyone can do it, but you have to refine your applications. You have to refine your methods and you have to see which ones produce actual physical results if you really want to get somewhere. Right. Okay, so like early on, you mentioned only feeding on people, but have you known other vampires that that can feed on other types of energy or do vampires just specifically kind of feed on just other other living human beings? That's a good question. I have come across many people who say that are self-proclaimed vampires that say that they can feed off anything and they feed off the sunlight and the clouds. And so great for them. That's not my experience. My experience is that I am in a humanoid body and therefore I need to take energy from another humanoid. It comes down to the fact that even though my soul is beyond a human soul, I still need that relationship, such as, I'll give you a perfect example, a, a dog and a person, they can't have a baby, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a dog and it's a person. I relate the same experience to vampirism. I am in a humanoid body, so therefore I need to take energy from another humanoid. That is what is going to correlate over as far as the mechanics are concerned. If I was to just go out there and say, oh, I'm going to take it from a cloud or this or that or whatever, to me, that doesn't relate. That doesn't give results. And again, I'm just speaking from my experience. I'm not trying to in any way shape anyone else's opinion on energy work. This is just my experience and what has proven results for myself. Gotcha. So did you ever find a mentor or did you find that most of your life as a vampire you were kind of learning through trial and error well i came into the scene in a very old world way i would say that a lot of this tradition has sort of faded away just because it's not as common anymore to go to a coffee house and you don't know who you're meeting face to face and you sit down and you have a conversation with an absolute stranger about something that's very taboo, which was my experience. Uh, my mentor uh, has long since left the scene. They were my mentor for maybe four years. I learned a lot from them. The biggest life lesson that this person gave me was to not get caught up in the glamor of vampirism. And I would love to share that lesson with anyone else who is a neophyte in the community, newly coming in, a beginner student, is to not think that you have to have the aesthetic in order to learn the practice. That's not what it's about. And it was one of the greatest lessons that my mentor could ever have shared with me. Uh, My mentor was known as Archer in the community. And again, he's long since left. Uh, the other personality that I was associated with taught me the, the practice and the importance of ritual. 
but it's not the ritual in itself that is what's truthfully important. It's more so the relationship that you're creating through your practice with those without body, with the beings that have been able to transfer over to the next place. And, you know, you can call it what you want, but I don't like using a lot of references or words because then it it, you know, brings the connotation of other things with it. So I'm just going to say the, the next place over, creating that relationship and allowing that expansion and that knowledge to grow between you and them so that you learn how to step outside your own body. Uh, and I don't think I would be on this path if it wasn't for having a life and death experience, which I did have. And so... I was on the verge of passing over, transitioning over, whatever you want to call it, NDE, near-death experience. And I sort of saw what was coming next and I had that experience. So I'm not afraid as, as maybe some other people are. And I sort of think that through that experience, I have more uh, relatable journey as far as myself is concerned. Okay. Um, so you, you said you said earlier that um, you're not a sanguine vampire, which no. is a vampire that feeds off of blood. Uh, but do you know any? Uh, do I know any distant? Yeah do 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 sanguine do sanguine vampires and energy vampires kind of mix, or do they kind of keep separate? Is it like water and oil? No, I would say they mix. Uh, but to be quite honest, I, I probably will have an unpopular opinion here because I'm I'm a student of science. So drinking mm-hmm. blood has never held any purpose or results for me personally. Uh, my opinion on this is just blood cannot help you sustain your subtle body when you leave the flesh. And I acknowledge blood to be the, the stuff of Hollywood, really, and drinking blood makes you a higher evolved being then there would be truthfully nothing special about being a vampire there'd be nothing evolved about it i mean you can go outside and cut something open and drink its blood and eat it so does that make you a vampire no but again i don't understand i don't relate to the the whole hollywood aspect I don't really think that when you leave this state of being that any of that that was existed physical in this place transfers over. So for instance, you're a vampire and you're in the next place of being, whatever that is, different realm, whatever. You're not going to be able to drink on blood there, are you? No. So I think that the evolved state has to learn to adapt to something different. Do I think that in the beginning, our ancestors were playing around with that idea and maybe that's where that came from yes i do i do think that they were uh but that's probably another another story it's it's not my experience so i don't uh go on to talk about this in any way to make anyone else feel like it can't be their experience it's just not mine and it's just not something that relates to me do those sanguine vampires uh, that maybe you know or have come upon are they are they similar or how do they differ in um, 
how did they differ from vampire energies from as far as as far as you know from your observations well a lot of them do use the blood practices in ritual it's a very small amount it's not like you know they're sitting down and (laughs) drinking a whole cup (laughs) there is a point where (laughs) if you take so much in you're you're going to get sick and throw it up uh so I would think it's used a lot in ritual practices from what I have been able to see. I'm not going to speak for any one sector group. It's not my place to really discuss that. But I think that they're different in the way that they relate to the, the blood practice as a sustenance and a source of energy for themselves. They believe that the energy of the blood refreshes them, rejuvenates them. And for some people, I guess, cures certain ailments that they themselves experience. I don't know, maybe sensitivity to light. But I'm not the source that you really should be tapping for that because, again, this is just what I have been uh, able to experience outside of it because I'm not that practitioner. So that's really what I can offer as far as that question is concerned. Well, you know, I think it's it's actually good that you admit these things as an individual because it shows like the variety and the vastness of the the community, um, you know, and and how there are individuals and the practice is very personal, personal. Um, and I I feel like as a practitioner of magic, it's the same way. You can't. Um, fit every practitioner in the same you know peg hole (laughs) so to speak true and you can't speak for someone else either so i i can't speak for someone else's experience i can only speak for my own so i know Mm. at times when you talk about things that are outside of your experience maybe people think oh well you know she thinks she's better than other people because she (laughs) doesn't relate to the sanguine experience but no that that's not what i'm saying what i'm trying to say is that I am not the authority to speak on this subject, but I can tell you what I know based upon what those acquaintances have shared with me, have so openly shared with me. And I'm grateful for that because, again, I'm on the other end of the fence. Right. So witches have covens, werewolves have dens. Um, What would you call a group of, of vampires? A group of vampires. Yeah. I mean, some people say that, you know, a a group of vampires is also a coven. Is there a certain term for, like, uh, vampires who meet together in order to practice ritual? I wouldn't say just to meet together. I would say that there's houses within the vampire community, but those people have a stronger bond with each other than just getting together for a ritual. It's more of a fraternal gathering. Okay. So So houses. Yeah. But again, like I said, that's a much closer bond. They're, They're family with each other. It's not just about gathering just to have some sort of commonality or relationship uh, that's more so reserved for for like a court for instance okay and a court um, is actually a mixture though it's not just vampires but also yeah 
So yeah, it is a lot of people on the outside they they don't understand the difference between between those terminologies and and, and what that is. Uh, a court is actually a combination of houses, and it's a mix of both. Uh, can be a mix of both vam- vampires and Correct. other, you know, magic practitioners. Yes. Okay. So, um, when vampires in a house, do they have like a ranking system or hierarchy that they go by? And if so, what kind of titles would they use? Sure. Again, this is such a vast topic. I can only speak for myself and my experience. There are all kinds of titles and recognitions. Uh, So for instance, in the organization that I was involved in, there was, you know, you would be coming in as a seeker, first and foremost, uh, someone who is searching for information, not necessarily totally aware of what they are, but maybe you're noticing that you have some vampiric tendencies and you want to research that more. So that would be a seeker, someone who's very new to the scene. In the practice that I was involved in, there was a term used, uh, Jahira, and that was someone who acknowledged what they were, which would be a vampire, and that you were going to research on your own through ritual practices and daily meditations to see if you had any experiences to pursue what would come next, which would be Kalme initiation. Kalme initiation is recognition of the night side. So that means that you have experienced phenomena and results within your own ritual practices And that would therefore complete your journey a bit more, meaning that you are more dedicated, you are more tied to your experience, you have more regular rituals. Everything has sort of come together for you at that point. After that, there would be what was called the Moroi Ascension. And that means that you have verified sorcery for yourself within the ritual experience. So you have been able to make a certain goal occur, a certain phenomena for yourself to enrich yourself, and therefore you recognize that within your own experience. After that is what is considered the next step, which is the priesthood step. So you are dedicating yourself to the path, uh, to serving others, to being there for others, to offering rituals, to being able to be of knowledge and education to offer a ritual. And then typically after you have done that servitude for a period of time, you are offered, if you are deemed capable, (laughs) it's not something everyone is offered, but then you are considered to be in magister, magistra, whatever you term to call it, uh, ascension, and you're tested. So others who are of that capable ascension will test you to see if you are fit for that title, for that ascension. And if you are, you are given that through ritual 
and that title should serve you for the rest of your days and it's it serves as a beacon to others to recognize you to see you for your soul and the work that you have to do with others with other vampires so that they can have their own experience and their own evolution so as a teacher you know we lead we lead others we guide them but we're not telling them what to do we're there for assistance when they need us so that is what has been my personal experience with my own education so to speak mm-hmm. uh it's not everyone's experience i mean there's so many other titles there's so many other bars in which you have to go through it just depends on where you are what what house you belong to what clan you belong to everyone has their own means but that is a very the one that i listed is a very basic uh path that was founded by uh, Ordo Strigovai or uh Sebastian Father Sebastian Now do you have people or organizations who work very closely with the vampire community or like certain houses um where they're not necessarily seeking to grow in rank as a vampire but because your techniques might have been um proven with uh scientifically with energy manipulation like they might be interested in learning from that maybe to kind of um uh add add enrichment to their own practices I would say that we have had close interactions and affiliations with other vampiric groups uh we've never really shared that material and and solely because i i am in the process of writing a book and that book is not out yet so there's a lot of information that will be included in that book that doesn't belong to me but belongs to order of omnia so until that occurs and that happens a lot of the teachings won't really be discussed or talked about and it's just to protect the organization and to protect the uh material and to keep it genuine and and true to its form to not allow it get, not allow it to get misconstrued or to gain misconception when it you know needs to be read in the book firsthand gotcha so um for my for my uh experiences i've heard that social interactions with vampires can be different from dealing with a common human being uh what are some rules that a person would want to abide by if they were going to a social event held by vampires and what are some things that would be considered taboo sure well most vampires prefer the old world etiquette and respect established even prior to the community so for instance if you want to go by the dictation and guidelines of the community i recommend anyone to go out there and to read the black veil that was established by elders of the community you can read up on that for reference but going to the home of a vampire for instance is very different than going to a social gathering 
Uh, would you want me to discuss both of those? Sure, please. Sure. So going to the home of a vampire is a much more intimate experience. You would most definitely uh, be on your best behavior. You would watch what you say. Uh, you would definitely want to have the greatest manners. So you would wear your best garb or clothing. Uh, traditionally, vampires wear black. Uh, a lot of vampires these days are wearing more of a corporate goth black, for instance. So they're going with a more modern approach uh, to clothing. So fine black dress or fine black suit for the gentleman. When you arrive at the home, you would bring a gift for them. Uh, fine wine or a fine arrangement of flowers, for instance. Uh, you probably would be offered a cocktail or a tea and you would come in and you would sit probably in the parlor and have great discussion on some topics that you had been looking forward to. You would experience a nice display of hors d'oeuvres and then you would sit down for a nice fine dinner. Uh, you'd had a, have an aperitif and wait for your dessert. And the, the intimacy is much more deep on an a home-based level, meaning if you're going to a vampire's home to sit down with them, it's you're expected to have deep conversation. You're expected to not be distracted, for instance, by your iPhone. So something you wouldn't do, which is a major turnoff for me, is when you're having conversations with other people and you're sitting there, then they break out the uh -huh. iPhone and then they just interrupt and, and you're going on and you're talking and they're there and they're just tapping away on their iPhone and you're just like, wow, that's so rude. <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the things I fell in love with with my husband was that he's so insanely well-mannered. I think that manners speak volumes about an individual, not only on a vampiric level, but also on a human level. And a lot of those manners go to the wayside these days. So I think the phone would be a big red flag. I definitely don't like that. So for vampire, for a vampire to actually invite you to their home, is that like a, a big sign of trust? Would you say? Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> a lot, a lot of vampires will. Uh, I don't want to say all of them, but. We have our room, we have our bedroom. That's where you're being let into something, even if you're just getting a show of the house, because that's the room <laughs> where I feel like we show ourselves the most, uh, you know, as far as decorations or statuary is concerned. Uh, but it is, it, I would say it's a step. It's definitely a deeper step if you're allowed into the home of a vampire. Uh, that's their space. It's not yours. So I think that if you are allowed into the home of a vampire, you're definitely expected to act on your best behavior. Right. Okay. So what is, what is the way that you would conduct yourself if you were in uh, a more public social, social event with uh, a group of vampires? Sure. A group setting, most definitely, you have to be under the guidelines of the Black Veil. Uh, you would be screened at the door to see if you fit those guidelines or not. Uh, if you don't fit those guidelines, typically you're told right when you're at the door, you cannot enter because you're not dressed appropriately. 
uh, that would be more formal, most definitely, than going to the home of another vampire. You're expected to really wear your best. You're expected to really act your act your best. If you are a guest or a presenter for an event, for instance, you should be there early. Uh, you don't walk in last minute. Uh, you greet others, especially if those others are in the community, community leaders. You greet them. You acknowledge them. A lady at times may curtsy or may offer her hand for a kiss. Uh, a gentleman, the very old gentleman in the vampire community, would extend their hand to take a lady's hand and to kiss it. I had that experience personally with uh, Father Vincent. And I'm telling you, there isn't a day that goes by that a, a woman doesn't acknowledge that experience as being a very sacred one. Especially if you're more of the more old world mindset. And while you're at that event, you are watched and you're observed. You're expected to act with the highest form of etiquette. So do you find that in most events, it, it's kind of like this old world co code or do you feel that it's slowly kind of changing and, and loosening up or it's just like it, it depends on where you go and, and who the vampires are I think it definitely is evolving and changing uh, I would say that in certain aspects it's become a bit more casual and again, it definitely depends on who you're surrounding yourself with and what event you're going to, such as a ball. You wouldn't go to a vampire ball and wear the forbidden jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> you're going to be told <laughs> to leave when you get to the door. Uh, but, you know, if it's a, a gathering outdoors and it's a house and it's a family picnic event, then sure. It's most people will be dressed casually and that's perfectly acceptable and okay. Again, it, it depends on who you're with and, and where it is. And usually there's always some sort of uh, outline that's given to you way in advance of, you know, what's expected of you. So it's not a surprise when you go to a ball or an event or you know, a family picnic, for instance, it, it's not a surprise. You know that everyone's going to be dressed their best or people are going casual. Now, um, we did talk a little bit about the system of magic that you guys have. Um, in, in some way, it can't even be called magic because I feel like magic is a science that we don't really understand that well mm -hmm. and you've you've established that you have a scientific method in order to prove what you're doing um but you've also talked about kind of ascending to something greater after uh death i suppose so what what i'm getting to is do vampires have their own kind of pantheon of spirits Do they have their, like, uh, do they have separate beliefs about what happens, you know, where they go, their spirits go, or is there, like, a kind of um, united belief as to where the spirits of vampires go once they pass on? Sure. The 
most diehard vampires I know have absolutely no belief system. They only eat and worship themselves. So if you think about it, if you had full control of yourself and energy, why would you be so weak as to give it away, such as to mm. worship? Because if we want to break down what worship actually is, it's an energy exchange. You are giving your energy away to something else in hopes of receiving something. And that's the mechanics of a vampire ritual. You are taking a harvested energy and you are offering it to those without body, the undead, whatever you want to call them. And in hopes of a return, a kickback in order to help your own personal evolution. But yes, there are vampires who practice left-handed paths, paganism, voodoo, chaos magic. Uh, I personally do not worship anything. And again, that goes back to, to the Omnia practices. So a pantheon of spirits would be more properly fitting for someone who practices a, a worship that would entail having a pantheon of spirits, such as a voodoo practitioner. Uh, we do not have anything of the sort within Omnia. Do you kind of maybe recognize those who have been a part of your life that have passed on? Kind of like uh, ancestors, not ancestor worship, but just kind of, you know how like people recognize the ones who were kind of like a pillar in their community and kind of pay homage to that person? Do you mean in prayer or can you elaborate a bit more on that? Well, I mean, kind of um, how some people, okay, let's say with the Egyptians, they believed that pharaohs were the embodiments of a god, the physical embodiment of God. And when they passed on, they became gods, so to speak. Do you know vampires who believe something similar? Sure. Most definitely. Again, the, the scene in the community is so vast and wide that, of course, we have people that that practice that. It, it, I mean, it's more of like, a, what is it called? There is, there is a sect. I probably shouldn't mention them anyways because I'm not speaking to them. <laughs> but there is a sect. There is a specific sect that do uh, work with the, the ancient Egyptian gods. Okay, but do they believe that... I'm, I'm not speaking about the, the Egyptian pantheon per se. I'm just saying, do they have a belief similar where they feel like the people who are powerful within their community have passed on and, and are kind of like they've reached godhood, so they recognize them as such when they pass on? There has been some talk of that in the organization I was part of, but I don't think anything was ever formally acknowledged. So I would say in my experience and who I have known, I don't think anyone has been able to give that power over to others. Okay. So uh, if uh, a person is curious about uh, finding out more about the community and possibly becoming a part of it and be initiated into it where would they go sure 
Well, there's plenty of people willing to initiate anyone. I would say for the person who is seeking uh, to really gain an understanding, please go out there and do your research on whoever you pick as a mentor or teacher. It's sort of like picking out a college. You really want to make sure that the individual that is going to help you and assist you has the proper attention intentions and has the proper training behind them. So for instance, if you were interested in learning more about sanguine techniques, you would not come to Magistra Zaya. And then of course you want to question and ask, what does this mentor or organization have to offer you? I would even be so frank as to sit down with whoever you want to work with and come up with a list of questions, come up with a valid list of questions of what you're looking for and what you want to accomplish and see if that is even relatable to that other individual's practice. For anyone who's personally curious about our practices, you can research us and see what we have to offer at www.orderofomnia.com. And for those listening and who are interested, I will be leaving the link to that site on the uh, episode description so that you can click on that and learn further. So, uh, and you, you actually are the one that uh, holds the courses? I hold the courses and so does Magister Alad Arandi. So we hold them together and we alternate those courses. So for instance, he would teach one session. I would teach another session because of course he offers the masculine experience and I offer the feminine. So two different experiences for you to bounce off of. So is, is there actually a big difference between how a female would, would apply the practice to how a, a male would? This is new to me. Not totally, but sometimes, yes. It depends on what you want to utilize. Uh, Can you give us an example? Sure. Uh, My counterpart, my husband, for instance, he is more working with what I would consider a warrior priesthood path. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a warrior. I wouldn't say that that applies to me in any way, shape, or form. I'm more in the succubus realm or tantric practices. Okay. Not to say that a man couldn't, you know, be in an incubus or tantric, but no, he totally it's understood. Could. But as far as like <laughs> what we have to offer, that's, you know, that's sort of where our specialties are okay understood so i mean like and and depending upon your teacher you know because they're an individual the practice is going to be different from person to person anyway right so it's all about how how they apply that yeah all right well i really appreciate your time um i know you're a busy person or I assume you're a busy person. Yes. <laughs> um, you, you, you sound very busy from the people that I've spoken to. Um, and um, like I said, for all parties interested in contacting Magistra Zaya and learning from her, I'm going to be leaving that information 
in the episode description. Um, thank you very much for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, for I find you to be a very interesting individual. Um, although I'm not, I'm no longer deep into the the practice of you know the vampiric arts because I did so at one time when I was kind of awakening and trying to find my place in you know the nightside community. Um, I still find it to be a very rich and very interesting topic to kind of like revisit every once in a while. So um, I thank you very much for sharing your experiences because I know a lot of them are probably very personal. So thank you very much for for doing that with me and uh, the community that is listening to uh, that will be listening to this podcast. Um. If uh, anything ever develops, like when your book comes out, or if you're doing another project, please feel free to let me know. I would like to update that information, and if I come upon anybody who is interested in um, the subject of vampirism, then I can actually tell them about that or update, you know, them about that. Great, thank you for having me. No problem. So, for the listeners, if you are on Anchor FM and enjoy this content, please feel free to hit the support button. For those on YouTube, be sure to subscribe. And like always, I encourage you not to just take someone's word about things. Explore and do your own research and experimentation. This is Greg signing off and saying, see you next episode.